This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. Before we begin today, I would like to pay my respects to the First Nations people of Australia past, present and emerging. Today we have with us Stuart Rees, who will be discussing his book, Cruelty or Humanity, published by Policy Press, which is an imprint of the Bristol University Press 2020. Stuart is Emeritus Professor at the University of Sydney, and he's associated with the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. Prior to that, Stuart was, for I think more than two decades, a professor in social work and social policy, and now lives near a beautiful beach south of Sydney and dedicates his time to peace and conflict studies. So good afternoon, Stuart. Good afternoon, Pete. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Now, before we begin discussing your book, could you introduce yourself to our audience and provide a background to yourself and what got you interested in the peace and conflict studies area? Sure. Um, look, I was, um, I suppose I'm a, a human rights activist as much as I am uh, an academic. I, I worked in, in the Central Criminal Court in London for many years. I worked for the Attorney General in uh, Western Canada for several years. I worked in the war on poverty programs in the 60s in the United States and then went back to Scotland, did a PhD, finished up eventually in, um, in Sydney University as Professor of Social Work and Social Policy with sociology thrown in. <clears throat> but uh, my philosophy uh, has involved me in saying and uh, acting as though I should spend 51% of my time outside the walls of the university so that um, I took pretty seriously the relationship between theory and practice in particular in the in areas of human rights, peace negotiations, um, social welfare, and so on. I hope that's not too long-winded. No, that's good. And out of interest, have you ever been arrested for your activities? <clears throat> yes, I've been. I've been. I've been arrested in um, uh, for taking part in an illegal demonstration in Berkeley, California. I used to teach at the University of California at Berkeley. That was over the over the, um, the the Vietnam War. But then lots of us lots of us were arrested in those days. But I've never actually been 
um, arrested by New South Wales police, even though I've taken part in plenty of demonstrations here, most recently one outside the the courts regarding Julian Assange. Right. Okay. Now, your book is called Cruelty or Humanity. Could you let our audience know what the aim of this what the aim of this book is to begin with? Well, the book is essentially about the the idea, or not the evidence, that in democracies, dictatorships, and theocracies, cruelty is the centerpiece of of domestic and foreign policies. Even though a great deal of effort is goes into denying that that's the case. In other words, I'm arguing that there's really not much difference between democracies and dictatorships in terms of the use of cruelty for uh, powerful uh, politicians, powerful institutions to get their way in life. And I really wrote the book not only because I was appalled by the cruelty, but because I realized that it was never acknowledged that cruelty, uh, that there was a great deal of enthusiasm about cruelty on behalf of people who um, uh, who nevertheless claimed they were good Christians or good Muslims or good Hindus, um, or even in Australia's case, good mates. Right. Could I ask you to explain what or how, what's a useful way of considering what cruelty is? What cruelty is? That's a good question. Look, essentially, it's the it's the wanton imposition of pain and harm on on human beings and animals without any possible justification. I mean, that's that's a simple definition. Uh, the word wanton means that there is absolutely no justification for that policy or that behaviour. Um, if we looked at all the international laws and covenants that that um, prohibit cruelty, you'd see more specific, uh, more specific definitions. So for example, cruelty in a marriage, cruelty towards children, cruelty towards animals um, have certain variations, but the common theme is the one that I've just mentioned. Yes. And equally, how should we consider humanity? The book's called Cruelty or Humanity. Yeah, that's um, an equally uh, good question. Really, it's about it's an it's about respect for the interdependence of of uh, people and all living things. In other words, it embraces uh, every citizen of the world, uh, every animal, and and this precious planet. But a more specific definition would be to look at the. 30 clauses of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which if, um, if, um, uh, if taken seriously, would represent a, a commitment to humanity. After all, when it was passed in 1948, it was said to be the highest aspirations of the common man. Um, but but you'll, you'll probably note that that I've also used poetry and music to describe what humanity means. Um, yes. I'll give you a couple of lines from, from the Aboriginal poet Ujuru uh, Nunukul. Um, I'm for humanity, not, not coloured uh, jibes. I'm international, never mind tribes. I'm international, never mind place. 
I'm for humanity, all one race. So that's about as close as I can get. Yes, understand. Now, there's um, two points you've raised there I want to come back to as this interview progresses. One is about humanity can be considered at a societal level and also at a more micro-individual level. And I do want to talk about the role of poetry in your book. But before yeah, there, yep. one, one question I have is the book is called Cruelty or Humanity. Um, is there any exclusivity between those two concepts? Because I imagine people would have a balance of both. I mean, I've said things that I would consider cruel and I would also consider myself to have some level of humanity. Well, yeah, that's another good question, Bede. Um, it's really about the way we all use power. At, at, at one end of a continuum, a power is mostly has been mostly used uh, over the centuries in an abusive way, in a top-down way. You only have to ask indigenous people and, and women around the world who, who know they've been on the receiving end of what I call one-dimensional power, abusive power. The only thing I expect of you in, in when power is exercised in that way is that you should be obedient and compliant. Um, and it's hardly, and a, unfortunately, a great deal of politics is played in that way. Um, at the other end of the continuum... Of, okay, uh, now in, we have Stuart back. We've had to jump to the phone. Unfortunately, there's something wrong with the telephone lines or the computer lines. And in any case, we will proceed now. So my next question, Stuart, is in the book, one of the things that you do is you merge what seemed, what are atrocities of various descriptions, you merge that or infuse that with various pieces of poetry. Correct. And Correct. at the start of the book, you have this interesting quote from observation from Shelley, the English poet, who said that, the poets are the legislators of the world. Now, Shelley, I imagine, would be a good candidate for that because as, I'm not a, as much as I know about Shelley, he was a bit of a, a sort of humanist-type person. He was vegetarian. He had a very liberal view of life. And I imagine, so if he was the legislator of the world, that would be great. There's probably some other poets you wouldn't want to be the legislators of the world, but the enterprise of poetry as being the legislators of the world. What do you what do you take from that? Yeah, well, I think, I think it's a, it's about having a vision of the future. It's about trying to imagine a, a better world. So that unless you have a vision of the future, whether it's by poetry or great music or great social policies that are committed to human rights. Then, um, then life becomes just a question of pragmatism and day-to-day -day survival. So a bit like the architects of the Universal Declaration, Shelley was saying, no, we need, uh, we need vision about, about an humanitarian future that could be uh, artistic as well. Right. Okay. Now, next, I would... I'd like to investigate the um, – one of the points you raise early in Chapter 1 of the book is you have these you, – you, you explain how the, the, the events of the Holocaust are well, have a, are well known to the public imagination, but there are other atrocious events, including events at similar times, that may not be so well known. 
And as an Australian, one thing that I, I at least is a little bit scandalous is we know very little about the famine in Bengal in 1942 and 1943 where 3 million people died. And there was even an Australian governor, R.G. Casey, in charge of that when it was part of British India at the time. Could you could you talk about the difference between some events that are known and some that just seem to be unknown? Sure, I Well, I think um, uh, the the media at different stages can dramatise certain things and ignore others. So, for example, if you take the Bengal famine, uh, Churchill was largely responsible for that. But the media, certainly in Britain and in Australia, were trying to paint uh, Churchill only as the great inspiring war leader who could do no wrong. And it's only in retrospect that we realize that he was uh, incredibly cruel in his policies. I mean, he's, he, um, he said that the, the Indian people deserved it because they bred like rabbits. Um, so it was, it was, he was highly racist in that respect. And, um, I don't think there's some evidence in the book that the food, the, the, the grain that was intended for, uh, the people of Bengal, he didn't, he, he uh, determined to have the ships turned away because it's, he said it was better to feed uh, feed the British than the, the starving Bengalis. Um, yes. Also, I mean, the, the other example I'd give is that very few people knew what happened, what has happened to the Palestinians over the decades. It's only it's only recently that um, that uh, the Palestinian side of that story is told. Similarly, most people are unaware of the the founding of the Americas, South America, North America, and Australia was was based on the elimination of indigenous people. I mean, it was significant that you began this interview with your respect to the indigenous people of Australia. But most people are completely unaware of the of what the truths are about um, about the colonization of this uh, country. Yes, that's that's um. um... I was reading a a book by the the indigenous historian Henry Reynolds, and he has a it's, it sounds funny, but it's actually quite tragic how early in seventeen eighty eight, after Australia was founded, six or seven convicts were hung for stealing, and he observes that well, it's sort of a bit ironic because only a few days before he had single handedly stolen a continent. And here, here are these poor convicts being hung for stealing. So yeah. I thought that was quite, quite yeah, brought that brought the point you've just raised out quite well. Um, the the next the book focuses on a lot of regimes or gives and sort of events from a lot of re, harsh regimes in the last half of the twentieth century. So, for example, reference is made to Jeffrey Robinson's study of Iran in nineteen eighty eight when a lot of prisoners were killed. Could you explain the the dynamics in countries like that, where between a political government and also a theocracy? Yeah. Okay. Look, the um, the um, the Western powers agreed, colluded with the eventual uh, disappearance of the Shah, the monarchy that was followed by the by the Iranian Revolution, the I think the West 
the Americans, the Australians, the British didn't expect religion to be immediately dominant as the major consideration of government in Iran. But I think within months, um, it became apparent that it was. But it's it's a religion which is, uh, or an interpretation of religion, which is dogmatic, preoccupied with power, um, doesn't allow the uh, the uh, the tolerance that uh, we think we like to expect in in in, um, in so-called democracies. So, in a way, the uh, the the point about a theocracy is that it um, is that religion and state are all the same thing. Whereas most of our experience of government is concerned the desperate attempt to ensure that religion and the state are kept separate. In other words, most most early revolutions were fought on the grounds that religion and state should be separate. But what's happened in the theocracies is that they're 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 one and the same thing. Yes, and you've mentioned power a few times. The role of power in regimes have become cruel. If what what motivates something that's powerful to become cruel? Yeah. Look, I've explored, uh, I mean, I looked, I think I looked at just about most of the countries of the world and, and asked myself the question you've just asked me. And it's quite apparent that um, cruelty is never dished out to people who have been defined as equal to the perpetrators. A process of stigmatization, of defining people as, as unworthy, as inferior, uh, as inhuman, and in some cases, they're defined, people are defined as not really existing. So once people have been classified in those terms, this seems to give the powerful an entitlement to do what they like. So, for example, in the case of the Rohingya people in, um, in Myanmar, it is a criminal offense to even mention the word Rohingya. They were regarded as not existing. For decades, it was an offense uh, to to acknowledge that there were a group of people called Palestinians. I discovered to my cost for many years that you, you shouldn't really mention the word Palestinian. So, so uh, once people are defined as, as unworthy for racist reasons, for, um, for assum- because of assumptions about superiority, this, in, this seems to entitle... Uh, leaders, so-called leaders, to to try to punish, uh, torture, uh, even eliminate the ones who've been defined as unworthy. I mean, the, the, the shocking example at the moment, you know, there's just been an election in Israel, um, and this is the judgment of some of my Israeli colleagues, a right-wing fascist parliament has been elected, and it wants to, um, it has plans to deport from from that country, people it doesn't like. Um, you might apply the similar argument to us and our treatment of asylum seekers and refugees by sticking them at enormous cost on remote Pacific islands. Yes, with refugees in particular, you have a section in the book where you talk about the former Australian Attorney General Philip Ruddick, and um, is. One of the points, and I may have 
I may not be getting this completely correct, but one of the points you seem to be raising is that he's a, he can be considered to be a sort of composite person. He can have elements of policies that people might consider cruel, the way in which asylum seekers were treated. But equally, he was a person who was on Amnesty International, so would have been against things like the death penalty and things like that. So within this one individual, there's this striking contrast. Could you talk about that a bit more? Yeah, well, it's a... It's the Jekyll and Hyde characteristics that, you know, you could say lots of us have. Um, the person who is, um, you know, charming at home, but, um, but uh, anything but charming in the workplace. The, um, I mean, a, a reflection of the way Philip Ruddock behaved. I mean, he, for example, he was one of the people who denied, uh, denied the, uh, who, who claimed rather that, um, the refugees had thrown their children overboard when, in fact, they had not. He was a supporter of the decision to, when the, when the Norwegian freighter, the Tampa, on humanitarian grounds, picked up hundreds of refugees and, and brave Australia jumped up and said, via John Howard in that case, but um, Ruddock was part of his government, you know, we, we're going to decide who comes to this country and how they, and how they travel here, irrespective of the rules of international law. So you've got a lot, at best, a lot of um, contradictions built into the way people behave. And um, Philip Ruddock was a mass of contradictions. I mean, his daughter was so appalled at, at his behaviour towards asylum seekers that she left Australia and, and said, apparently, I can't bear to be here anymore. Mm. Yes. The, the book itself, when I read it, I remember I found it quite difficult in the sense that it has a, it obviously just chronicles a lot of terrible things that have happened over a long periods of time. And it's interspersed with these poems. And the poems, in a way, create, in me at least, an emotional response to the events. But they don't make the event become happy. It just can't become happy. And it might give you reason to reflect on it. When you prepared the book, did, how did you consider how you would deal with it? it would, did you ever feel I should put in some uplifting tales from particular sure, countries? Sure. Well, in a way, the book is two essays. The first part is about a record of the past. Um, the second part, which is called the Humanitarian Alternatives, is about what you're referring to as the potentially happy part. How do we... How do we we, we have to acknowledge the past because, as you've mentioned in the previous question, many of the atrocities and mass murders are, are barely known by people. But unless, you, unless we know about, unless we acknowledge the past, we can't, we can't um, uh, face up to the future. And Kevin Rudd's apology to the Indigenous people of Australia was, was one attempt, a kind of watershed attempt, to, to recognise certain aspects of this country's past. Look, there are, there are all sorts of references, not just to poetry, but to, uh, but to music and to, um, uh, in a way, to prepare myself for the second part of the book, which is to say, uh, what sort of humanitarian utopia can you, can you uh, possibly build? And um, uh, I think it was... Um, George Bernard Shaw said that, no, it was um, W.B. Yeats who said that um, 
if you go to talk about a better future, you have to imagine some sort of utopian conditions. And I think the the ambivalence and the contradictions that we've just talked about with regard to Ruddock, in a way, the, the romantic English poet Wordsworth, when he observed the cruelty of the Industrial Revolution, he had that in mind. He said, what, what a fair world were ours for verse to paint if power could live at ease with self-restraint. So you, you've always got the germ of what you've referred to as, as happiness to a, a, a far more humanitarian world. Um, the germ is always there. Uh, it's in some people's DNA. and We just have to have the policies and the dialogue to achieve it. Yes. On the same page where you have that quote from Wordsworth, you have an extract from Judith Wright's poem, Two Dream Times, which I, which I thought was a beautiful poem, a beautiful extract you have there. Could you talk about, um, if you, if, I don't know if you can recall, it would be good if you could, could read sure, it, sure. and what, what that says to you. Well, it, it, she, the two dream times, she was very close friend of Ujuru Nunakal, the, the, the Kath Walker, the indigenous poet. So it's in a way the two dream times are uh, the Aboriginal uh, woman's dreams and the, and the white poet Judith, Judith Wright. Um, she's saying that she acknowledges that um, uh, despite this beautiful planet, she was the, the Aboriginal person was the victim of of uh, of rape, of um, of of uh, human rights abuses, of the stealing of land, uh, of of faceless stockbrokers who wanted to invest at at your expense. And mm. uh, the alternative dream time is about about humour and love and. Um, enormous respect for the beauties of the Australian environment because Judith Wright, among other things, was a great campaigner, perhaps the first campaigner, to protect the Great Barrier Reef. She was, she was uh, long, long before the, the campaign to protect what's left of a precious planet, uh, Judith Wright, in addition to being um, a famous poet and a, um, a great friend of Rujaru Nunukul, was a campaigner to protect the Great Barrier Reef. So that's another part of the, the dream time. Yes, and when I read that extract, I thought, gosh, this lady, Judith Wright, she gets Australia. There's something about her that just gets this country. <laughs> no, it's a good point. It's a good point. Um, um, yeah, when she's passionate about the Australian environment, the spirituality, the physicality of it, and, you know, she, you know I can... I can quote poems of hers which which elaborate that, which need to be as much part of as much a part of the dialogue as as politics. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
the book moves on to talk about what 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 at least in social psychology are called total institutions and you refer to things like the Magdalene laundries in in Ireland and atrocities where it seems to me the the concept is if people are put into an environment one they can be abused by the people who are the the chiefs as it were of the environment but secondly the the people who are abused just come to accept that that's just in a way that just there's no escape that's just their life could you understand could you explain the role of this, what you mean by this total institution concept? Well, it's what the sociologists called internalization. If, you, if you're constantly demeaned and punished and, and locked up, you, uh, some, uh, many people um, internalize it to the point where they think that their reject, rejection should become self-rejection. In other words, they, they can justify their, their own humiliation. And um, look, for decades, unmarried mothers, because the Magdalena Laundry in Ireland is just one, is one example, unmarried mothers were, were treated abominably. And um, eventually, a few years ago, Julia Gillard, when she was prime minister, and Gordon Brown in, in, um, in, in the UK when he was prime minister, uh, made abject apologies to uh, tens of thousands of unmarried mothers Whose, whose children had been taken away from them without, without them in many cases ever being consulted. So mm. it was, it's part of the stigmatization. The unmarried mother was regarded as, um, uh, was regarded as a completely unworthy person. I mean, the morality of that age, and it's only changed very recently in some parts of the world, it hasn't changed at all. You know, I mean, in, you can go to countries where, uh, unmarried mothers are put in prison for 10 years. Or if they have a miscarriage uh, and they're not married, and I'm talk- thinking about El Salvador, you can finish up in jail for almost for life. Yeah. But the question is about the institutionalization. I mean, everybody in a way becomes affected by the institutions in which they spend most of their their waking hours. Yes. A poet who might actually be the poet, the poet you cite the most in his work, or she will at least be close to it, is Denise Levitov. And there are some very moving poems that seem to contrast. Well, that, that you'll explain, for example, atrocities that occurred in in the South. A lot of those, those Americans begun South Asian wars, Vietnam, and then. Um, Denise will have a, a, a poem, and some of them are just are very moving. And what what do you? I just wanted to, to ask you your thoughts on her work and how it, how it how it affects someone's emotion when they consider events like that. Yeah, well, it's in a way it's related to your earlier question about you know what do people know, what do they not know. I mean, um, I think most people didn't know about the atrocities being committed in Vietnam. Um, they we were. We were frequently told, I lived in America at the time, that um, the body count was mostly in favor of the United States. In other words, they were killing more people than they had casualties. The point about Denise Levitov, uh, an amazing point, is that she actually went to Vietnam and observed direct, well, this isn't secondhand poetry. So those poems about, you know, what do I do with a woman who's 
who's had her left left arm shot off. Um, what do I do mm-hmm. with it? How do I respond to the child who's just been uh, palmed? Um, our our, um, our uh, incredibly incredibly powerful. I mean, she some of the best poems about peace in the world were written by Denise Levitov following the um, following the time she spent in um, in um, in Vietnam. But it, in a way, it's because she was. It's back to Shelley's notion about vision. She grounded her poetry in the direct observation of um, of events and and wrote about it in 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 a kind of multi-dimensional way. Because good poetry sometimes is more effective than good prose. It, 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 I mean, you've you've mentioned in your question about the emotional response that the poetry can can provoke, and that's. And that that happens with poetry better than with prose. Yeah. Yes. And and with Denise in particular, one thing I wanted to ask the the, the poem, the first poem you have cited from her is I'm just looking up the name now. It's called In Thai Bar, which means peace peace province. In, yeah. And she has this wonderful beginning where it says, "I've used up all my film on bombed hospitals, bombed village schools, the scattered lemon yellow cocoons at the bombed silk factory." And I wanted to ask you, Stuart, is is this some sort of in in? I mean, we now we're now talking about this poem, so it obviously has has had some effect on the world. We're in we're um, we're sitting in Australia and talking about this poem, but it seems to be almost a lament by her or a frustration that. It was as though all she could do was just watch this, and there was nothing else using up the film. Yeah, look, I think you picked up the message. I mean, she's saying, "I'm in a state of despair. I've, 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 I've used up all my film. I've made all my observations. I've cried all my tears, and still this massive cruelty is going on. I'm not sure what to do next." Um, you know, I did an interview the other two days, forty-eight hours ago with a young man who was ringing me up, talking to me by Zoom from, from Myanmar. And he said, what, you know, Professor Reese, what, what do we do? We're being, we're being shot. She said, you keep on talking about nonviolence, but we're being shot. What, what, what are we supposed to do? And that sense of despair in his question is really what, what colors Denise Levitov's poems in, in, um, in uh, Vietnam, and if you if you went to the department, if you went to Washington D.C. to raise those sorts of questions during the during Vietnam, you got um, you got um, denial. You got and and because one of the things in the book is that I, I came across how much effort was made by powerful people to deny that cruelty had ever occurred. And so when people are denying that something happens, you know pretty certainly that it happened. Yes. Now, changing tack slightly, there's a the book progresses and you have a section where you discuss deliberate violence by the state in the sense of things like execution of people. And you talk about the case of Andrew Chan, who was an Australian in Indonesia, executed in 2015. And, yeah. and one of the points you make is that the state was so able to to clinically kill this person 
and the state just did not seem to have the state itself didn't seem to have the mental capacity the the legal ability to even consider the concept of mercy could you talk about that look those those executions were plain evil and we have to uh, you know, I've had to negotiate in all sorts of conflict situations around the world. You have to draw a line in the sand. You have to call things for what they are. And um, uh, that government, in common with lots of governments, including Australia's attitude to asylum seekers, where you think of the, the four people, the family of four with the two little girls being stuck on Christmas Island for an absolutely bizarre episode in Australian history for more than a year. Um, Unless we have the kind of conversation that you and I are having now regarding this book, unless there's dialogue, then the the alternative, the, the, the pathway to mercy, the idea of power being used in a non-abusive, um, non-destructive way doesn't occur. You know, I must have in my career talked to thousands of politicians and thousands of military commanders in different countries who, whose understanding about what the alternative ways to use their power are is very limited, partly because the kind of conversation we're having about what the alternatives are don't occur. So that these, we've, for decades, powerful people have saved face. They didn't want to and be merciful to Andrew Chan and his and his and his friend, um, because it would look it would look as though the government was being weak. It didn't. We would have to. It would have to save face. It wanted to. It wanted to bang its chest and appear powerful, and that's partly why the um, why capital punishment is retained in so many countries still. Mm. When I think of the concept of mercy, I often think of it as having a relationship to the concept of justice. And there's, a, there's lots of talk about how those two things can work together or if they can or if they can't. It seems, though, from the way in which you describe Andrew Chan's story, it's not as though the alternative to mercy here is justice, because I think you would say what happened to him wasn't just. So in a context like that, how does mercy work? Well... I mean, I take my friend Archbishop Desmond Tutu's uh, philosophy, um, uh, which was no future without forgiveness. Um, can you still hear me? Okay, because they've gone off. I can't see you anymore. Yeah, no future without forgiveness. So what was what was to be lost by the Indonesian government um, deciding to forgive? Because justice is an elusive concept. It's always... In a way, we, uh, we are struggling to achieve justice almost every day of the week. What is, what is fair and just within the family, in the workplace, on the streets, in um, the conduct of non-government organizations, in, in state governments, in international relations? You know, it's the... I mean, I, I always just go back to the, to the blueprint for justice, the international blueprint, which is the 30 clauses of the Universal Declaration. And um, uh, you could say it's a struggle to identify what freedom means and how it can be experienced. Whereas 
the constant use of prisons, if you take a United States, for example, imprisons more people per capita than anywhere else in the world. They're, they love prisons. They're fascinated with prisons. And yet, mm-hmm. as, you, as you enter New York Harbor, there's a statue that says, this country is the land of the free. So there's the complete contradiction between the fascination with punishment and prisons and the false claim that it's the land of the free. I mean, the only thing we can do is talk about it, is to bring to people's attention the contradiction. Yes, and it seems to me you would have your work cut out. You, The peace activists of the world would have their work cut out for them because the examples you give in relation to executions, you go through a lot of states that where execution is relatively common. Saudi Arabia, the United States, China, Iran, and Pakistan. And in each of those countries, I imagine that the children, the next, each, as each generation rolls through, they will be taught this is just what you do when someone misbehaves, sure. you know, what we deem misbehavior. So how, how as a human, how, how, how can it resolve itself in what, how could you imagine going to a country like that in 100 years and not seeing executions? What needs to happen? Well, it, there has to be, I mean, the, for centuries, uh, men, it's mostly men, and it's mostly tribal customs. got very little to do with religion, even though religion is used to justify what happens in so many places. But, but men have um, uh, this, this old idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you seek, if you're offended, you seek revenge. That's, that's a, a very primitive notion of justice. There's hardly any future. We, we'd be constantly at war with one another if that was, if, uh, if that was the, the principle for conducting business. And, I mean, the personal is the political. If, I mean, I've been involved in negotiations about domestic violence. And in a way, domestic violence is the minuscule example of um, of international wars, because the the powerful can think of no other way except to try to obliterate and beat into submission those whom they offend. There's an alternative. There's an alternative agenda. There's an alternative vision. It says, in my philosophy, we're only on the planet for five minutes. Is that really a way you wish to to live your life? I mean, you and I could discuss the wonderful poetry of Denise Levitoff, the music you like, the music the people who might listen to this broadcast like, nobody, none of those people are going to say, I wish I'd killed more people. I wish I'd tortured more people. But, mm. the, but, the, but the, the people in positions of power and, um, seem to think that they're, they, they can only think about exercising power in that top-down, um, uh, destructive way. And it's, it's partly bead about a language. You know, in my view, they are mostly highly illiterate about nonviolence. When I go to Canberra, when I go to uh, Washington or Westminster, I, I, I listen to a lot of people who are very literate about violence, but highly illiterate about nonviolence. Mm. Now, the book has some very good sections, I think, on animals and animal cruelty. And it 
presents a picture of animals as being, you spoke about this earlier, as animals being this class of people who are, or not people, but class of beings that are deemed to be inferior, and that then justifies cruelty toward them in a way. And you, you, even, you even then explain how within animals there are different classes of animals. So there's domestic pets that you can't kill, but then there are farmed animals where you can kill them and the way in which you can treat them can be horrible. Can you talk about what you thought was important, why it was important to include those sections? Yeah, well, I, I thought it would be um, absurd, wrong, almost immoral to talk about cruelty to human beings if I didn't address the question of cruelty to animals. And um, you can hardly talk about the philosophy and practice of nonviolence if you decide that it's a good idea to put uh, 3,000 sheep in a, in a, in a, in a ship uh, and ship it and send it to the Middle East and knowing that um, one third of them are likely to die of suffocation on, on, on the way. And that, or if you look at the, the, the terrible record of cruelty to animals for sport purposes, in, my, in many parts of the world, but um, even in even the cruelty that goes into to zoos, even the cruelty that was that was publicised with regard to uh, greyhound racing and the preparation of greyhounds to be to run fast at, at the expense of of uh, rabbits and uh, other live animals, mm. uh, we can't talk about. And humanitarian alternative, unless it includes <laughs> man's best friend, the dog, and yeah. all the other all the other creatures. If you think of I mean, if you think of the of the consequences of the bushfires, I mean, millions of animals lost their lives in Australia. They are mm. we 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 live in an interdependent world. If we decide to eliminate one part of it, the planet. In David Attenborough's terms, it won't exist. Yes, and with with animals, it raises to me it raises a more a, a very difficult issue for I imagine for lots of people. Where we're, we're talking about Andrew Chan a moment ago, who was executed in Indonesia, and he could have been treated very well in prison and then executed, but I don't think that would, in your judgment, mean his execution somehow became uncruel. It was the fact that he was killed. So if I happen to be hungry tonight and I decide, well, I'm hungry, I'm going to go and eat a, a chicken burger, is it, is, am I in a sense being cruel but not knowing it by thinking just because I'm hungry an animal should die for that when I could just as easily have a, something that doesn't involve killing a chicken? So how would you? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult moral dilemma. I have to admit that I'm... Um, I, I mean, I'm not a vegetarian, for example, and um, uh, there is a, certainly a strong argument that um, if we went, if we want to be serious about the preserving planet Earth, if we want to be part of the extinction rebellion, in other words, people re rebelling against the prospect of all living things becoming extinct, um, then you probably would have to look for a vegetarian burger instead of a chicken burger um, mm. on, on, on those grounds. 
I mean, I think the the awareness of cruelty to animals. If you take, for example, the the racing industry, uh, I think again it's a bit like your reference earlier to atrocities that people didn't know about. I think the the cruelty to the animal world is largely an unknown. Yes, very well hidden. Um, oh, it's, yes, the um, and then from moving from animals, you then it's almost as though you're making a, a sort of ironic contrast. Where then you then talk a little bit about how there have been some just massive changes in. So when Palestine was the West, people were moved to the West Bank, and you talk about seven hundred thousand people being moved and five hundred villages destroyed. And it just seems as though those, it's almost as though the, the observation you're making is, well, these people are in a way just being treated the way we treat animals. What's your view on that? Well, yeah, look, I've spent quite a lot of time on many visits to refugee camps throughout the Middle East, but also in, um, in Burma and so on. Um, I experienced um, ter- the consequences of terrible cruelty beautiful people stuck in a refugee camp in, um, it's called Burj al-Barajni in um, the suburbs of Beirut. These are largely people from the Galilee. They were farmers. They've been there for over 20 years. It's um, it's a place of about uh, between 20 and 30,000 people now, mostly where the main, the main road is about a meter wide. It's basically an alleyway down which sewage thrust flows and the leader of that camp said to me we only want the chance to prove that we are human beings now um we've we've locked up these people we've pretended that it was never a problem and um there are now millions millions of refugees in 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 those in those camps as a consequence of um the what what is called the nakba the the front in in the Palestinians' terms, the tragedy, the tragedy of their homes being taken. I've been in many of the, the shacks that they live in, and they still have the keys to the and, and the papers of, of the homes that were taken from them in, in 1948. That mm. massive that massive dispossession of 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 a whole people um, is 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 perhaps the biggest, has been the biggest cancer, the biggest primary site of a cancer in international relations since the Second World War. Mm. Yes, it's terrible. Now, our time is running out, Stuart. I would like to ask you, with your work, I imagine you have an aim, what you would like a reader, hopefully, to take away from this. And I don't imagine it's just learning about these facts. I think your book, I mean, I could be wrong, is directed to calling people to some form of of understanding or change or doing something. Could you, un- could you explain to our audience what you think the reader should be doing, what you would ideally like the reader to do when they turn the last page of your book? Yeah, great, great question. Look, I, I, I want people to be able to imagine a better world. And um, to imagine a better world around the world, we have to have the language with which to talk about it. If we don't have the language to talk about it, it's it's difficult to to paint the vision in Shelley's terms. And and the 
uh, the better world, the, the language has got to be about redefining what we mean by humanity. It was almost your first question. In other words, um, so uh, imagine that you, you, can't, you can't define humanity unless you pay attention to the task of nuclear disarmament and, the, and, and a totally different policy regarding global warming. You can't imagine a better world unless you redefine what you mean by what we mean by uh, human rights. People think it's a preserve of lawyers. I think you're a lawyer. Um, uh, you know, human rights is something that, that we discuss that you can deal with in the home, on the streets, in the school, in the learning place, in work and so on every, every day, every day of the week. So we have to mm. reimagine what is meant by human rights. And we have to reimagine what is meant by politics. People say to me, well, I'm not interested in politics. And I say, well, well wait a minute, you, did you grow up in a family? They say, yes. I, and I then ask them, was there ever any conflict in your family? <laughs> I mean, in other words, the, we've all grown up as a, as a consequence of power plays that are the politics of the family. And that politics that familiarity with power play, and we're trying to deal with it in Canberra right at this moment in saying women have been abused, women have been treated as second-class citizens, and that attitude has to change dramatically. And that's just another part of my plea in the book for imagining a better world. You know, we can think about it in terms of, you know, your hospitality to me in doing this interview we can think about it in terms of music we like and poetry we like and great art and uh, great cooking and great fashion. Those are all crucial dimensions of humanity that should enter into political and international uh, dialogue. Um, my concern in imagining a better world is that the very opposite of what Trump meant when he said America, make America great again. It's the very opposite of that. And it's the very opposite of the criminal stupidity of the British when they voted for Brexit. I don't know if that's sufficiently optimistic to end on. No, but the, the point's made. Now, um, we will have to wrap up soon, Stuart. So could you, would you please let our audience know what you're working on at the moment? Okay, well... <laughs> That's a good question. I'm working on a couple of things right at this moment. I'm looking at the the the, the gun culture in America that allows uh, people, large numbers of people, to be slaughtered with guns almost as though it's taken for granted. And I'm trying to um, address the American um, uh, American reading public and to saying this is um, uh, you can't claim that you are exceptional and not address this uh, violent culture that you all live through. The second thing I'm working on concerns a, a massive issue of freedom and respect for human rights in Australia at the moment. It's about the behaviour of the Australian Federal Police, of, of ASIO, mostly invisible, of uh, uh, probably Peter Dutton and his department in, in um, abusing their power, but trying to be uh, deceitful um, about the way they abuse power and um, 
uh, I, it's not easy, but I'm, I intend to uh, pursue that um, those issues uh, in the next um, uh, the next few weeks. Great. Well, thank you for your time today, Stuart. Thank you for joining us. Your book, Cruelty or Humanity, is available now through Policy Press, published through the Bristol University Press, and I think it's available in Australia through New South Books. Yeah. Um, once again, thank you very much for your time and for giving us this book to read. Pete, thank you. Thank you for your interest and, and, um, and for conducting this interview. I, I enjoyed um, talking to you. No, my pleasure. Thank you.